We're talking about the resurrection and what it means to practice the resurrection. Quoting Wendell Berry's poem, the last line of that poem is to practice resurrection. It's such a great piece of advice to the followers of Jesus. What does it mean to live into and respond to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to live into the truth of it, that he's alive, that he's risen indeed, and discover what it means to be empowered by that truth of Jesus' resurrection? And what's equally true is that the post-resurrection stories in the New Testament prepared us for this. You know, much of this material was written at least 70 years after, well, maybe 35 years after Jesus' death. And so the church was already aware of its, its kind of consternation at what now? Uh, what, how do we live into this? How do we practice this truth of, of resurrection? And it's like the, the passage that Andrea spoke on last week where John says, you know, these stories were told so that you might believe. And we all don't get the same kind of chance that Thomas had to actually stick his hand in the wound of Jesus' side. So we need these stories. And that's part of how we practice resurrection is we live into this truth that's kind of a little bit hard to take in. So we've been looking at those post-resurrection accounts in Luke and in John's gospel, but today we shift gears to look at the first two chapters of Acts for the, the next four weeks. Acts, the book of Acts, if you don't know this, is really the second volume of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus' ministry in his gospel, the gospel according to Luke, and then the story of the spread of that gospel in the book of Acts. And so Luke begins both his gospel and this particular historic account, the Acts of the Apostles. He begins with an introduction to the person for whom he is writing these accounts, and his name is Theophilus. And Luke contends in his gospel that he's going to give a more orderly account. Like any writer, he was not satisfied with the writings of others and had to put it together himself and so we're going to read his more or orderly account of the early church in the book of Acts, at least the first two chapters over the next two weeks. And so we, we look today at his second telling of the ascension of Jesus. He does so at the end of his gospel. He does it again here at the beginning of the book of Acts. So Acts 1, 1 to 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
And while he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we pray the prayer that we're always praying, which is open our eyes. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him at work in our lives. We want to see him out in front of us, showing us the way. So Lord, open our eyes. Lord, we pray this in the name of the one who holds all things together, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I've had two recent experiences which kind of shaped my way of looking at Acts 1, 1 to 11, and both of them have to do, interestingly enough, with rocket science. <laughs> Not that I know anything about rocket science myself, but I, I know enough to know that I can find out about it by reading the stories of different people. And recently I said to Marianne, I said, let's watch something uplifting tonight. And I don't know what happened, but somewhere in our conversation, some allusion was made to space and I don't know how I said I know I know what we want to watch let's watch something uplifting where the f-bomb isn't used like a comma and uh, <laughs> and where nobody's getting into bed with anybody else and let's let's just let's watch something uplifting let's watch October Sky you know and I don't know whether you've seen this movie but it's about Homer Hickam who in 1957 saw Sputnik go across the sky as a high school boy and then started this amazing just voracious search for learning about rocket science. He was a child of a West Virginia miner and had little expectation of ever getting out of that town because you only got out of that town if you were a good football player and you got a scholarship somewhere. Not many people had the academic credibility to get out of there. So anyway, he starts researching rocket science and starts to put together these little rockets that almost kill several people as they buzz through town and and so finally he is able to go out into a someplace in the remote part of the town and finally succeeds in in getting a rocket to go up it's it's a great movie it's it's one worth watching again and again and again but the other thing that came to mind was the recent explosion of the SpaceX rocket that's supposed to go to the moon as we re-engage that whole process of the space program. And it was so interesting because, you know, they, everybody was ready to report that the thing exploded, but no one was wringing their hands. In fact, well, maybe some people were wringing their hands, but I, uh, the way it was reported was the people in charge of this launch, this experiment, if you will, were pretty satisfied with the success of it, even though it kind of exploded into smithereens. Uh, and that's kind of the way things work. If you watch Homer Hickam and what he had to go through just to launch his little rockets and how he learned about fuel and how he learned about the engineering of the way that all worked, uh, it's not much different than SpaceX. And what they're doing is that the truth is, is that the work of science is long and slow. You know, I see Lauren out here and I'm just going to enter into conversation with you, Lauren, here for just a second. Lauren is a plasma physicist. And how long have you been working on the issues that you're working on trying to discover the properties of plasma that might be harnessable? 
1969. And how many failures would you say you've had during that time that have led to further research and kind of opened up new, new things? Can you count them? Lost count. You lost count, good. <laughs> One of the things that Lauren said to me that made me re realize that the work of science is long and slow is basically he's been working on this since 1969 and he doesn't expect to live long enough to see the results that you've been working to try to achieve. Is that right? Yeah. So the work of science is long and slow. And I need to say that it's often peppered with disappointment and it's often peppered with dismay, apprehension. Can we go on? Shall we continue to pursue this? Shall we continue to spend money to try and discover these things? Or is it time to just sort of cut our losses and go on to something else? Disappointment and dismay are very, very common experiences, I'm sure, of every scientist. But disappointment and dismay are also very much our companions in the long, slow work of spiritual formation. The long, slow work of growing into the image of Christ, of taking on the mind of Christ. The long, slow work really of any relationship is based a lot on disappointment and dismay. You know, when we can say to ourselves, we thought we knew what was going to happen and we had hoped something else would happen, we experienced disappointment, just like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We experienced dismay because we're not sure where to go next with this. Uh, that bit of pause where we ask the question, what now? Perhaps there's some apprehension about trying again, about trusting again, about looking for a way that we can actually continue to grow in a positive way. Spiritual growth is a long, slow work of taking on the mind of Christ, of reflecting the image of Christ to the world. It's a big part of our relationship of growing into relationship with God. The biggest part of that relationship, I think, is not the truths we discover about God in terms of some list of attributes that we hear theologians write about in their books. Probably the thing that advances our relationship with God more than anything else is coming to grips with who God isn't. How God didn't come through. How we were disappointed by God because we thought God would do something different than what has actually happened. And it's at that point when we realize who God isn't, that we've had and processed an experience that tell us who God isn't, that God didn't do things in the way that we thought he should, that we experienced that disappointment and dismay of you did not come through for us, God. So if you're not who I thought you were, who are you? Who are you? I'll stick with you and I want to know who you actually are. It's like that line in the 44th Psalm that Colleen read earlier for us, where the psalmist bemoans the fact that God has not gone out with Israel's armies. We don't feel your presence. So who are you?
the post-resurrection stories are kind of illustrations of some of these feelings. It's not just all about trumpets and celebration. It's not running around saying, he is alive, he is alive. It's, oh, blank, he's alive. <laughs> What's that mean? He's alive, but he's not here with us now. So what's that mean? And here in Acts 1, 1 through 11, there's two questions, I think, that give shape to this tension and this back and forth that we experience when we learn about who God isn't and have to move forward in light of an experience of a relationship that keeps us steadfast. There's two questions that tell us something about ourselves and about God. A question that we ask God in the face of the disappointment and the dismay, who are you? If you're not this, who are you? And a question that God or God's messenger asks us. So first, that question to God that comes in this text. Jesus gives these words to his disciples before his ascension. He says, wait in Jerusalem, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. And they're saying, oh, good. Maybe this is what we're going to get, what we've always expected. Maybe this is going to be the time when God restores the kingdom to Israel, which means this is the time that the Romans get their butts kicked and we get our town back. Is this the time, they say to Jesus? Is this the time? Are you talking about going back to Jerusalem because we're going to watch this apocalyptic display of the incineration of the Romans? Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is very gentle with them because they're asking him this question. Is this the time when you're going to show us that you're going to be who we thought you were always going to be? And he says, just quite simply, you know, that's above my pay grade. It's not for me to know the times that the father has issued, you know, and so he gives them either a yes or a no to the answer. It's just, it's not for you to know. And I think he's saying something else here. I think he may be even saying this is not something you need to know. Or maybe he's even saying you know, guys, that's the wrong question. For in Jerusalem, what's going to happen is you're going to receive power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. In other words, don't worry about that. Live now. Go and live in the world with the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of humanity and being found in human form, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Go and live in the world with what I gave you, is what Jesus is saying. And then he's taken up into heaven and they stand looking into heaven, thinking, what did that mean? There's a kind of dismay. There's a kind of disappointment. And so God sends those two messengers to give word to what they need to hear. 
and asks a question that gets them moving. Guys, why are you looking up? Why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who you saw go up into heaven will return to you. Why are your sights up there on what you can't know instead of down here on what you can? What are you looking at? Why is your attention focused on heaven? Don't just look up, look out and I'll be with you. I'll come again. But live in the expectation of that. Live in the expectation of that, but live now. You know, this isn't the first time that God delivers precisely this message through Jesus. You remember that at least three of the gospel writers tell stories of Jesus three times saying, we're going to Jerusalem, guys. I'm going to die there on a Roman cross, and after three days, I'll be raised. And Mark is especially good at pointing out how insufferably dense the disciples are, as Jesus says that. Because each time the disciples do something really, really stupid in light of what Jesus has just said, demonstrating that they didn't hear a blessed thing. And one of my favorites is in Mark 10, 35 to 45. It's the story of Jesus telling for the third time his story of death and resurrection. And James and John approaching him and saying, hey, Jesus, um, come over here for a second. We want to ask you something. We'd like those two chairs on either side of your throne in the kingdom of heaven. We think we're pretty qualified for that. And um, we're among the inner circle that got to see you transfigured. And Peter was there too, but you know, Peter's kind of a hothead and we think we could do a good job in your cabinet on the right and the left. And Jesus says, oh, okay, well, let me ask you a question first. Can you?" Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And you, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am going to be baptized? Again, not getting it. They say, oh, yeah. <laughs> and Jesus says, great. I'm glad you can do that. But this is not mine to give. <laughs> I'm not interviewing for those two jobs. And I don't get to choose the candidates. And I think once again, what Jesus is essentially saying is, guys, in the kingdom, those jobs don't exist. There is no chair on the right and the left because that's what is in your worldly kingdoms. The kings of the Gentiles love to lord it over them and their, their leaders exercise power over the ones below them. But it shall not be so with you for the greatest among you will be the least. And the first will be the one who is the servant of all. Hierarchy like that doesn't mean a thing in the kingdom of God. It's a completely different order of things. We always want to know when God is going to accomplish the redemption that we want. When God is going to accomplish redemption as we conceive of redemption. And that's usually a pretty small picture of redemption. And in our defense, we're human beings who know when we're in pain and we would love God to address that pain. 
That's what we want God to do. And so we ask, when are you going to grant it? Or why didn't you grant it? But the question that I think we really ought to be asking in light of our situation is a bit more nuanced. It's not when are you going to redeem, but how? In the face of pain that we experience that we would love to have addressed, I think the best prayer is, Lord, you're in the business of redemption. You're in the business of freeing us from these things that enslave us in this life. How are you going to redeem this? How are you going to take care of this pain? How are you going to resolve this thing that has brought grief? How are we going to move forward in light of this new thing that you're doing? And what's interesting is, is that his answer to us is the same as it was when he invited those first disciples to join him. Well, come and see. Watch. Wait. Follow me. Keep walking. Keep looking. And expect to see me. Expect to see me at work, even though I may not be at work in the way that you expect. But think bigger. Let the work of the Spirit in you be to broaden, to expand your imagination, to open your eyes. Because although you may not get the redemption you want, you will get the redemption you need. Because that's what I'm granting you. And that redemption you need is far bigger than anything you can ask for or even imagine. Let's pray. Take us beyond the limits of our stunted imaginations, Lord, and move us into that place of openness that comes when we understand that you are with us and you will not abandon us. So help us to watch for the signs of your presence and to be your people reflecting your love to our world. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.